Hi. Welcome to the ATM2 podcast. Tonight our guest is Jasmine Cochran. Hi Jasmine. So nice to have you with us here today. So just to start hey, off. Yeah, uh, just to start off, uh, what are your thoughts on maternal mortality in general? I know it's a huge problem all over the world and uh, just what do you think of the problem uh, as a whole? I think it's unfortunate. I know that I have two children and um, it is a precious, precious thing to carry life and an even more precious thing to give birth to that life that you put so much effort into. And um, I think that it is one of the greatest tragedies of living on our earth that um, there are women who create life and then don't get to see the fruition of it. And so, you know, it's a shame. I know some people who have been pregnant and their pregnancy did not end in a live birth. And it's something that you never really get past. Um, it is terrible. It has an impact on the entire family and on that woman for the rest of her life. And if she goes on to have subsequent pregnancies, there's always a fear that she will lose that pregnancy as well. So it's, it's hard. It's very difficult physically, mentally, and emotionally in every way. It's a hard experience for women and for the families that surround them as well. Yeah, I feel like uh, as, as a woman, you have a much deeper insight into what this experience would be uh, if one were to experience it firsthand. And those are some powerful words, and certainly around the world, especially in developing countries, um, millions of women face these sorts of crises um, where they don't not only die because of their pregnancies, but sometimes they're left with severe diseases that, while it may not kill them, certainly cripples them or impedes their ability to uh, live a fruitful life. And that brings yes. us to the related question of maternal morbidity, which, uh, as many of our listeners will know is uh, an aspect that is not that frequently talked about yeah even though it's mm -hmm. just as important as maternal mortality it affects 16 times as many women and again while it may not kill them it still causes them severe problems later in life so what do you yeah. think about the issues of uh, maternal mortality and morbidity and which one should be placed greater emphasis on and uh, just the general dynamics of that uh, that's a good question. Um, which one should we place greater emphasis on? I don't know. I mean, because I think that I don't really know. Some of the solutions could be the same. Um, but then, of course, like there's going to be, there, there will be differences. There will be differentiation in how you handle the situation. There's so many different factors involved. I think that in a country like the United States that has so much money, you can do both. <laughs> you can take a look at how to handle both issues. It doesn't have to be either or. I think it could be uh, both and. Um, I think that it starts with value and where we place our value, especially here in the U.S. I know that, um, I mean, I have two kids, right? And people are having fewer kids now for a myriad of reasons, but one of those reasons is because of money. It is extremely expensive to live in the United States. And when you take a look and see where all of our money goes, a lot of it goes into research, but there's hardly ever any conclusions. <laughs> you know, like you hear about cancer research, cancer research all the time, but there's no cure for cancer. You know, like 
where is the where's the bottom line? Uh, all the money that we give to um, our military, all the money that we give to just a whole lot of things that a lot of people don't get the benefit of in their living rooms, in their bedrooms, um, in their homes every day. But we have the money. And I think that if we rearrange our values in our country, we could be able to take a look at the, the maternal mortality and maternal morbidity because there are people who have lasting health problems, mental health issues, things that need to be addressed on a much higher scale than they are. And there are people who are doing good work and who are moving in the right direction here, but we need to do it in all of our communities as a whole, moving in the right direction so that we people could have life and have higher qualities of life because that means that we have, have uh, healthier citizens and that our country as a whole continues to move to progress but if we don't have that then you know we we're already seeing the effects of it where people are having i think like half the amount of kids they were having in the 60s which i'm not saying people should have a whole bunch of kids but what i am saying is that if we continue at this rate, by the time I'm 60, most of the country will be that age. <laughs> you know, right. Who are the young people who are going to be able to continue to move our country in the right direction? You have to have youth to be able to sustain the society. And if we don't get a handle on mortality and morbidity, then we are going to lose that resource, um, which would mean that we would lose our standing um, as a world power if things continue to go in this direction and if other countries did take care of their mortality and mobility issues and we don't, then you know, we're gonna be we're gonna not be in the position that we are now as a world power, as a world leader. Because we won't have the bodies, we won't have the people to be able to carry things on. Right. Certainly as you mentioned, the United States is a country rich enough to tackle uh, both the issues of morbidity and mortality. It doesn't have to choose between one or the other. And even with all the all these resources that you know, as you said, many of them are going to fund other things like the military or uh, you know other resources, which many might still consider important. Of course, that's left up to the discretion of the listener. Uh, but how do you, uh, as a woman of color, feel about the drastically higher mortality and morbidity rates that minorities and uh, indigenous people and other people of color have to face uh, while giving birth and while getting healthcare in general? Uh, but specifically uh, in the context of maternal mortality and morbidity? It's scary. Um, it's scary. <laughs> I think that that's the, I think that that's the quickest way to package it, but to unpack that, you know, how do I, how do I feel about it? I think it's a shame. Um, it is just a reflection of the value that has been placed on people of color in this country from the very beginning. Uh, uh, of America as we know it today. Before America became the USA and whatever it was called at the time, you know, and really it wasn't called any one landmass, the different indigenous groups had different names for their areas, you know. Uh, but then it became the United States of America through a series of events <laughs> that we don't have time to cover here. But um, what happened was people became a commodity to build this idea of capitalism, and everybody became a commodity. Um, Native Americans were used for their expertise and then they were killed off. Black people were brought over on ships, many of them died on the way. The ones who 
made it experience things that should, um, that were unheard of before then. And people like to say that uh, slavery has always existed, which is true, but not chattel slavery, not this American brand of chattel slavery where you're born a slave, you're going to die a slave, you're always going to be a slave, you have no opportunity to get outside of that slavery, you know. That was a uniquely American thing. And black people were traded and sold like animals and were not even counted as humans, were counted as property and had no rights. And that was the establishment of an attitude that is still prevalent towards people who look like me today. And that's not just people who look like me, it is people of Mexican or Hispanic descent, um, people of Asian descent, you know, anybody who was non-white or who was not rich was treated as less than um, on different scales, you know, different uh, ends of the spectrum. It was a moving scale, but people who looked like me were absolutely at the bottom. And that is a hole that we've been trying to dig ourselves out of since then. So what that means for people who look like me is that you're dismissed a lot of the time. I think that there is this uh, subconscious implicit bias that people carry with them that is just an effect of the way that this country came to be. There is an attitude that all white people are racist. I disagree with that. I don't think that all white people are racist. What I do think is that white supremacy has heavily influenced all of us and white people have gotten the privilege of white supremacy, whether they realize it or not. Um, because white supremacy affects us all. And there are ideas and mindsets that we all have to educate and work ourselves out of um, intentionally. And they affect all of us because that's what supremacy does. It has the monopoly on the information, the stories, and the attitudes, right? So I'm saying all that to say that um, in the past few years, people have become more aware of what health care or lack of health care means for black people and for black women. And we are in a dangerous situation. And it is not because of, you know, well, black people make less money because this affects people on all ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, Serena Williams almost died <laughs> in childbirth. You know, there aren't many black women who have more money than Serena Williams does. You know, she's right. the, the greatest tennis player of all time. You know, everybody knows her as such. She's one of the greatest athletes ever. And she almost died because the doctors ignored her when she was telling them there was something wrong. This is because there is this mindset that black women are stronger, and that comes from the idea of black people being more like animals during slavery than humans. So people think that we feel less pain, that we can handle more, um, that we're whatever, or that we're complaining because that is a stereotype of black women as well, that we complain about everything, that we have bad attitudes. So when you couple those stereotypes with um, our, and I use this term loosely, health care system, <laughs> you end up with dead black women and dead black babies. It is scary because when you go into the hospital, you don't know who you're dealing with. You don't know if you're dealing with a doctor who cares or a doctor who doesn't. And if you get in there and you're dealing with a doctor who doesn't care, or a doctor who's carrying these viruses, it might cost you your life. 
Um, and this is not just when women are giving birth. I mean, there was a black woman who was a doctor at a hospital who died of COVID recently because they wouldn't treat her because she was telling them because she had been working throughout the COVID crisis through all this time, she knew what was necessary to increase somebody's possibility of living through COVID. And she was telling them what to do and they didn't listen to her and said that they didn't want to give her the medicines because they weren't sure if she was a drug addict or not. Oh. Now, is this the same attitude that, that white people get? Mm-mm. And so she went on Facebook and she said, listen, I'm telling them what they need to do. I am a doctor. They will not do it. I tried to get them to switch me to a different hospital. They will not do it. If I die, this is going to be why I died. And she died like two days later. And so this is all across the board of uh, healthcare for black women. Black women die of heart attacks more often, blood clots more often. Uh, because people just aren't, on the whole, listening to us. And that has always been the case. What we need is for people to take us seriously, to treat us like we are human beings in human bodies. And that often isn't the treatment that we get. It's very frustrating, and it's also terrifying. And carrying a baby is already scary enough. You know, like your body is completely transforming, morphing into something that you are unfamiliar with. <laughs> <laughs> and you're sick and you don't feel good and there's all these things and what you should be having at that time is a tremendous amount of care and empathy and that's just not what's happening for all of us that's just not what's happening for all of us uh, there were times when I had arguments with my OBGYN while I was pregnant and one time we had a, a full-out argument and fortunately my doctor took a deep breath and he said you know what um, tell me why you're coming from where you're coming from. And I sat down and I explained it to him. And he said, I didn't know that about you. And I said, well, you didn't ask. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason why you didn't know is because you didn't ask. I've been me, I've been trying to tell you about my health history, the sensitivities that my body has, because I've lived in my body for all these years and you haven't. I understand that you did go to med school and congratulations for that. But not for one day have you ever lived in my body. And if you would just listen, then we could be better. We could be a team instead of being against each other. And our relationship changed after that, and it, it changed for the better. And with my first child, when I was in childbirth, I did have some complications. And I believe that because of that candid conversation that we had had, um, they were more willing and apt to listen. And things could have gone very differently. And I also know that my case is one of fortune everybody doesn't have the same outcome. So that is what we need. Doctors who listen to us, who take us seriously, who understand that we know what we feel inside of our bodies when things are right. And to, to execute their expertise for us the same way that they do for people who don't look like us. Just treat us like humans, you know? Certainly. Uh, I definitely agree with how you mentioned the stereotypes that come up and how a lot of those uh, you know, notions about people of color can creep into the medical system and have them believing that they might not need to give as much attention to women of color no. or uh, mm -hmm. a lot of those other racial subtexts that continue to seep through society. And yeah. congratulations, I applaud you for having a candid conversation with your doctor and I think it's great that you had a medical professional who was willing to listen to you. Mm -hmm. I would yeah. also just I had been told that he was a really great doctor. Um, and that is why I went to him because people choose doctors a lot of the time based on referrals. Um, but then sometimes you don't, you don't have that option because in yeah. America, your health care is most of the time tied to your job. 
right? And so you get a job and they say, okay, here's your insurance and here's the list of doctors that you can go to. And you are allowed to go to a doctor outside of that list if you want to, but then you probably have to pay extra. And healthcare is not cheap. And so uh, we have been in a situation before in my family where we couldn't choose a doctor that we wanted or we were in a new town and didn't really know anybody. And so I had one doctor who was horrible and she was a woman and the way that she treated me was just horrible. Some of the things that she said to me at the time, um, I was dealing with postpartum depression and just wasn't in a state of mind to deal with it as I was able to with my first daughter. Um, but she was awful, you know? And I thought to myself later, does she talk to everybody like that? Or did she just talk right. to me like that? You know, some of the things that she said to me, like for example, um, hormonal birth control, I struggle with that. I tried several different hormonal birth controls and my body just didn't like it. I didn't feel human on those. And so um, when I went to go see her, she was like, well, what kind of birth control are you on? I said, right now, I'm not on any birth control. And she said, well, you better be on something because if you come in here pregnant and you don't want to make a baby, I do not want you to ask me about abortion. And I'm thinking, do you talk to everybody like this? Wow. That is certainly <laughs> Like, you're a healthcare provider. That's an option. It doesn't matter where you stand politically. You know what I'm saying? Like, that is an option. And if I come and ask you for that information, you, as a healthcare provider, are supposed to give me that information. You see what I'm saying? But the idea that black women are always having abortions, and, you know, I don't like the fact that black women are always having abortions, it's not your place to say something like that to me. And I was just very curious much later when I was able to process that as to whether she was only talking to me like that or if she's talking to her white customers or her white clientele like that as well, you know? So that idea that I can tell you what to do and you don't have choices and you don't have options, it's just awful the way that black women are talked to and are treated in healthcare a lot of the time. Um, and a lot of people think that it's because of uh, economic status, you know? Well, if you can't afford the best insurance since you don't have this problem, but that's not true, you know? Black women with degrees have worse outcomes in healthcare, especially with uh, maternal mortality, than white women who only graduated from high school. So that is not the issue. It's not based on education, it's not based on money. So it's gotta be based on something else, which is bias and stereotype. And that is the problem. And the only way we get to the bottom of that is first people have to admit it. They have to admit that that's their problem. And I think that that is the, the hardest part. Once you admit that there's a problem, then you have the courage to do something about it. But if you admit that that's a problem, you have to admit that you have exhibited racist behavior. Right. You know, doesn't mean that you are racist, but maybe you have exhibited racist behavior and you didn't realize that you were doing it. Mm -hmm. um, so that is step one. And some of them do realize they're doing it. But a lot of people are doing it on purpose. <laughs> but a lot of people, I think that when you are so invested in the system, you grew up in a system and you put all this money into med school in the system, then it is hard for you to take a look back and say, hey, here are parts of the system that are problematic and here are parts of my mindset that are problematic that I can improve on. Um, it takes a measure of humility mm -hmm. to, to do it. And it's something that we could definitely use more of. That, that was an extremely detailed answer and uh, certainly was very insightful. Uh, I'd also like to add at this point that um, you know, Jasmine also launched a database by the name of History Confronted, which was a training resource that was committed to changing how people view the narrative of um, 
people of color and change it to one of dignity, power, and achievement instead of, as you mentioned, uh, one where we're attached to stereotypes and those stereotypes dictate what people in uh, positions of authority feel about us and how they view us. And you've also served uh, as a teacher in China for five years. So you also yes. do have experience, uh, international experience regarding this issue. And while China has certainly yes, developed um, a lot now and uh, they don't face the problems of maternal mortality as much as uh, many other countries, and especially Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, like India, Pakistan, mm -hmm. or especially Bangladesh, for example, um, that is certainly an international language to your experience. And um, even uh, considering that, uh, you know, even acknowledging that the international aspect of this issue is a much bigger problem would, I feel, go a long way towards helping us make some inroads uh, and helping us make some changes to address concerns outside of our own country. How do you feel about you know, how, how people in the US or people in other rich, stable countries could help contribute to ending maternal mortality and morbidity in parts of South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa, where there are constant wars, conflict, and lack of resources mm -hmm. that uh, continue to affect women trying to give birth? I think that across the board um, in the world, women are viewed as second or sometimes even third class citizens. Uh, whatever happens to women is just a casualty of a, uh, it is a, the ends justifies the means kind of thing. And I think it's sad the way that women are treated the world over. Um, in many, many, many societies. When women, society wouldn't exist without us. I mean, we are the givers of life. And not only that, but women are brilliant and women are problem solvers. And, you know, there's so much that we bring that is necessity for all societies. It's necessary for all societies to thrive. Um, you know, you look at Malala, and I mean, she's a hero, <laughs> you know, yeah. and her resilience and her grit and her grace and the way that she isn't scared like she's fearless those are traits that many women hold and i think that um male dominating societies are scared of that because again it will mean a loss of power if we uh, could reallocate our priorities reallocate the funding towards uh something that was more representative of humanity than industry, then I think that we could do something about this problem all over the place. Um, so, you know, I mean, that is so much easier said than done. And I understand that because we have these, these deeply seated, tightly held views and the way that we've always done things. And once you have a system, no matter how faulty or problematic a system is, once you have one, it's easier to continue that system than to reshape things. The world over is having that experience right now. Um, what you're seeing all over the world is people rising up, protesting, dying, killing, fighting, all of that, because I think the world is just tired. We're tired of business as usual. We're tired of things uh, being throwaways, you know? And we're seeing it all over the place. And right now, like uh, in the US again, like indigenous women are rising up and saying, hey, our women are disappearing. What's up with that? Uh, women in South America, women in Mexico, you know, all over the place. There's been a lot going on in Mexico over the past couple of years. Yeah. Um, we have this, these leadership entities all over the world who disregard women. Um, 
who don't mind hurting us, um, raping us, killing us, uh, destroying us, and we're tired. <laughs> uh, it takes women in leadership, women sitting at the table, um, and being listened to, not just being there, being being at the table as a prop, but being at the table as an influencer to be able to do that. So one thing that's so great about Kamala Harris being vice president, she's sitting right. at tables that we've never had a woman sit at before. And she can represent people from all over the place because her mother was Indian, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's an opportunity to get more demographics, uh, more people groups um, in front of those who control everything so that we can have better outcomes. But you said something about this problem all over the world and I want to couple that, tie that into my experiences in China as well. And it's so funny too, I can tell you like um, when I when I'm talking to people and they're like, Where have you been? Like we haven't seen you and I tell them I've been in China, they don't know what to say. They don't know how to respond because of the way that most Americans view China anyway. Um, and people often ask me, like, what was the difference between what I experienced at home versus my experiences in China? And I've had a lot of experiences there. And um, I have some, I'm a pretty healthy person overall. Uh, but sometimes my body just does crazy stuff, and I can't explain it. Um, and doctors just can't explain it because I ask them to, and they can never find the answers. <laughs> but uh, one thing that I've noticed, or not just that I've noticed, that's just the reality, is Oftentimes when it comes to black women, um, if we have anything that isn't working perfectly in our bodies, healthcare professionals try to attribute that to weight, uh, when weight may not even be the problem, right? And so when you're looking at like BMI scales or you're looking at um, any chart that says everybody should fit here, uh, it's usually based on the majority. Well, I'm not the majority in America and I'm not the majority in China, you know? Um, and <laughs> when it comes to me and my stature and my body type, I'm almost six feet tall. I'm about 175, 180 pounds. Um, and I'm, I'm quite healthy. But in China, you know, I go for a physical every year. And they look at all the stuff and the way your blood work looks good and yada, yada, yada. But uh, maybe you should lose some weight. Nice. Uh, well, if you looked at me, you would never say that I should lose some weight. <laughs> um, I don't need to lose any weight. <laughs> mm-hmm. But when you look at the scales or you look at these graphs, they say, well, for somebody your height, you should weigh like 145 or 150 pounds, which would leave me looking sick. You know, right. it's just not the way that my body is built. Um, it's funny because the last time I went for a physical, the, the doctor in China said to me, you need to eat more vegetables and work out more. Well, I'm vegan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I work out five to six days a week. And it just makes me laugh. Um, but it's really it's really not a laughing matter. Like it makes me laugh because I was an athlete. I was a college athlete. I was, you know, academic all American. I, I broke records. Um, I don't need to wow. lose any weight. And black women are just built differently. And I think that we can I can say that without, you know, any pushback. We're built differently to the point where now, like, the way that we were built, it used to be um, a laughing matter, I would say. But now people are paying a lot of money for surgery to be built like black women. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, they want lips like ours. They want butts like ours. They want hips like ours. Now it's a, it's a major industry. You know, hey, make me look like a black woman. 
um, because it is desirable. We're an attractive group of women, you know? Um, but what people say is, well, you're overweight and you do something about it, when that might not be a problem. Uh, one example I have is there's a woman who was going to the doctor for knee problems and there's a black woman and the doctors were telling her, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight. She kept saying, no, that's not the problem. Like there's really something wrong with my knee. They finally did an x-ray, they didn't find anything. Well, maybe you should just lose weight. She was like, no, that's not the problem. She went to another doctor and requested an MRI. They gave her an MRI. That woman had tumors in her knee. She had tumors in her knee. And that had been the problem the whole time. Had nothing to do with her weight. But it's so easy for a doctor to go, oh, well, black women are mostly overweight. You're a black woman, you need to lose some weight, then your knees will quit hurting. But she had cancer. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, that's what I'm saying. Like, listen to us when we tell you, because it's not cheap to go to the doctor, we're not just like, oh, you know what? I want to I wanna waste $200 today. Let me go to the doctor so that they can tell me something <laughs> that I already know. No, like when we're going to the doctor, it's because we need help. We need you to tell us something that we don't know. We need you to employ some machinery or something that we don't have in our living room. And if we're telling you, no, this isn't a weak issue, this is something else, then listen. Just listen. And, you know, like I was saying, in China, they say, well, you're overweight. Well, I'm not. I'm six feet tall, taller than most of the people there. I'm an athlete. I have high bone density, and I have high muscle percentage. I'm not overweight, you know? If I'm having an issue, it's because there's an issue, and I'm asking you to look into it, not because I need to go run a couple of extra miles, you know? Right. Um, I used to be a fitness coach. Some things are because people need to lose weight. But a lot of things, that's not the reason. That's not the reason. But when people are so used to not hearing you, then that's the easy go-to thing because doctors only have a few minutes. You know, they gotta get you in and out because they got a lot of people in line. And when you are in a rushed state, it's just very easy to fall back onto stereotypes. And you know, the person walks out of your door and they go home with their problem, but you go home with your paycheck. Mm -hmm. Who's yeah. being helped? You know, and that's the case in a lot of Western societies, and that's the case in um, societies that have a lot of money, and especially societies whose healthcare is connected to money. And this is why I'm such a big fan of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and a lot of people, you know, they call me socialist, you're a socialist, you're a communist, blah, blah, blah. So be it. I just think everybody should have access to healthcare, you know? And healthcare shouldn't be so tightly tied to money because when healthcare is tied to money, then the doctors, the onus is on them, you know? Um, and the insurance companies are gonna get their cut and the doctors don't always get their cut. And so what they're trying to do um, along with getting paid is they're trying not to get sued as well from malpractice and all that. There's so many different pieces that are involved in it that doctors have so much to worry about. They can't focus a lot of the time on giving you the best care because they don't have enough minutes in the day and they might not be getting paid. And this is doctors of all kinds. You know, I know some people who they ran a physical therapy company and because they had to wait on insurance so often, a lot of times they didn't get, they didn't get the paycheck that they had earned, you know? So when you're talking about these, systems that are tied to so much money. You're talking about the focus being on the, the money and not the person. And, you know, America is in the minority in developed countries in that 
we don't have health care for everybody. We don't have universal health care. We have a measure of it with Obamacare, but we have so much longer, so so much further we could go with it. Um, and then when you're talking about countries that don't have the money that we have, I hate it for their women. I really do, because I know that they're on the bottom rung of importance when it comes to who's going to get the best care and who isn't. And it is just a tragedy all the way around. I wish I had an answer for it, but I know that part of the answer is empathy and less greed. Mm -hmm. Because all countries, not all countries, most countries, no matter how much money they have and how much they don't have, greed is a human thing. Um, something that needs to be taken hold of and something that needs to be gotten under control. And I don't know how you do that. You know, I just, I don't Certainly, know how you that's, do that. That's a huge uh, problem of human nature and cannot be fixed mm -hmm. in a one hour long podcast. Certainly, yeah, <laughs> that's beyond the uh, that's beyond what we offer for free on our uh, platform. It's, we don't offer the solutions mm -hmm. to human nature here. You have to pay extra for that. Yeah, <laughs> but if we could, only if we could, right? My goodness, you know, I just I don't know. I I am extremely empathetic um, to the point of a fault sometimes. Sometimes just the troubles of the world are too much. They're just too much, you know, and some days it's just really hard to function, especially when you do travel and you get to see people and meet people from all these different places and you just see how incredible they are. And then you see that they're not being treated the way that humans should be treated. It's just so difficult, you know, to think, hey, I get to go to bed tonight somewhere that is comfortable, somewhere that is safe, and I'm going to have my belly full when I go to bed. And... I have a right to speak out. Um, it might get me killed, but um, I do have a right on paper, you know, to speak out and to protest. And my kids going to be taken care of. But I just met somebody when I was traveling, and that's not the case for them, you know. And it's it's just so difficult because these are people that we're talking about. They are people, but all too often to governments, they're not people. They're commodities. You know, um, and, and that is heartbreaking. Yeah. It really is. Like, that just is heartbreaking to me. And I'm not able to just turn it off and say, oh, well, that's the way of the world. Mm -mm. We're talking yeah, about humans, man. That's, <laughs> We're a, talking about that's people. the first instinct you know? of a lot of people. Just start mm -hmm. to distance themselves from these issues and, uh, you know, say that the blame is not on them, which it isn't. You know, yeah. you're not personally responsible for all of the evils in the world. That's right. But uh, yeah, you can be. Yeah. Uh, but as you said, it's you it's good to be empathetic once in a while. And mm -hmm. uh, following up on that, I feel like uh, you know you have a number of qualifications in language arts. I mean, you teach um, AP English language and composition uh, in China. That's mm -hmm. what you taught there for five years. And you were also the inaugural Democrats Abroad Black Global Caucus Poet Laureate. So uh, I, uh -huh. I think you definitely have some insights uh, to offer on how we could use language and the power of words to create change. Because as people, as you mentioned, we it's difficult to upend entire political systems. Like that's on the scale of countries. So what do you feel uh, we as people or any of our listeners could do to bring more attention to the issue of maternal mortality? Use your voice. Use your voice. Use your voice. Use your voice. Oh, I'm glad that you brought that up about language because language is everything. And it's not just like nouns and verbs. It is the way that you use those words. 
um, the way that you arrange those words and also your own personal accumulation of knowledge so that you can know what you're talking about whenever you go into a conversation because people just take education seriously. They just do. You know, like you walk into a room and you can express yourself, people listen. And you can couple that with your differences. So like, I'm a black woman, I'm very tall, I have dreadlocks, I have a deep voice. All these things that if I um, <clears throat> didn't know what I was talking about, people could use against me. But because I know how to speak these things about me that might raise an eyebrow, now grab people's attention and I can use that in my favor. And that is what I do. Um, I make sure that I stay informed about what is going on. I'm always reading <laughs> all the time. And um, I give speeches, I write speeches, I am an activist in different um, areas and uh, was a poet laureate, I am an author, and I just know that words are important. When you look at pretty much anything, people love to throw quotes around, you know, Martin Luther King said this, Malcolm X said this, yada, yada, yada. Why do we do that? Because words are important, because they matter, because they mean something. And the more information you have behind your words and the more proof and evidence you have behind your words, the stronger your words are. You know that old adage, the pen is mightier than the sword. That's true. If you know how to read uh, legislation, if you know how to read between the lines of what some important person is getting up and saying, what are they saying, what are they not saying, and how can I use, use their words and my words whenever I get a seat? at the table of decision-making to influence people for the betterment of society, then you've done your job with words. You know, words can be a weapon. They can be a salve if you know how to use them. That's why I loved teaching AP language, because that's what we talked about. What is this person saying? Where are they coming from? What's their history? Uh, why do we trust them? Why do we not trust them? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and you, like when you and I, when we are honest, and when we are aware, people take our words seriously. You know, I don't, I don't believe that because I am a black woman that people aren't listening to me. Um, I know they're listening to me. It's just a matter of whether or not they're gonna do something about it. And I do know that in America, if you know what to do with the English language, and not just in America, because English is the language that most people around the world are speaking or are trying to speak. If you know how to work the language, people listen to you. Yeah. But you gotta be honest. You have to be an honest person. They have to be able to trust you, and you have to practice what you preach. And all of that comes out in the words that comes out of our mouths. You don't have to be perfect, but you do have to be consistent. And you have to be trustworthy. And you have to know what to do with the language. You have to know how to write it. You have to know how to hear it, how to read it, how to speak it. Um, and that has been a passion for my entire life. Uh, I've always loved English. I loved it. It was my favorite. It was my favorite subject all the time. And when I got to college and I was choosing a major because there are a million things I wanted to do in the world, you know, how, how do you pick one major? The one consistent, the one constant was English. Everything comes down to what I can do with this language. Also, it was the major that required the least amount of math. <laughs> and so that helps me make my choice. That's a but, yeah, but um, I've always loved this language and I, I just know that there's power behind it and you know how to utilize it. And so I spend a lot of time um, writing, reading, editing. I just wrote a poetry book and I've gone back and forth with editors probably no less than 50 times, you know, wow. to make sure it is perfect. It has to be perfect so that there is no confusion 
that when people read it, they know exactly what I'm saying. Um, and so, yeah, like that, that is why I have such a passion for words because I know how powerful they are. I know that words can move people. They can change everything coupled with right action and passion and unity. You know, if we, yeah. if we do that, we can make some change. But if you're quiet, if you don't ever say anything, or if you're saying things and it don't make any sense, and there's no, no information, no science or anything to back them, then you can, you can destroy a country. And we've seen that. We've seen that happen, you know. So it has to be, there are a lot of things that have to come together. But the way that we express ourselves through words, that's, that is the liaison, that is the catalyst. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what we have to do. That's, that's, the, that's what I feel like I'm here to do. Yeah. That's an amazing piece of advice to, uh, you know, bring this podcast to an end. Uh, I, I certainly agree that many of our listeners, especially our young listeners, you know, part of uh, Gen Z, as they call it, uh, we're the people mm. who are going to be responsible for change. We're the ones yes. who are going to have to stand up for what we believe in. And, uh, you know, as you said, <coughs> use the power of words uh, and use uh, how right. we communicate uh, and use those skills to send our message out into the world and just uh, have our message or our actions be heard by as many people as possible. So that's some mm-hmm. amazing advice. And I'm sure that many of our listeners here are going to take uh, take th- that advice very strongly and work on it. So, I sure hope so. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when, when you are young and you don't have all the responsibilities, you right. know, that come along with being older, having a family, having a full-time job, all these other things, when you have that um, time freedom and movement freedom of youth, if you can take that mm-hmm. and pair it with knowing how to express yourself eloquently and assertively, my goodness, like the power, the power behind that is tremendous. So yeah, I hope too that a lot of listeners will say, hey, you know what? I can do this and I will do this and I'm going to do this. And just like you guys are doing with this podcast, this is so important um, because, I mean, this is this is how we communicate, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and especially today in this world of technology, the more people who can hear it, the better. It's about empowerment, you know? It's about um, giving people permission to move forward and in, in, in power, you know, to move forward and confidence and to say, you know, I am willing to risk this so that we can get this. I'm willing to risk a little bit or maybe even a lot for the betterment of everybody. And yeah, I can do that that's a powerful with message. my words and my actions, you know. Certainly. Those are some powerful words. And certainly as someone who has had a lot of experience in this field, um, you, you know a lot about how the English language is an important method of communication and how, uh, as you mentioned, if we pair our knowledge of the English language with all the freedom that we have right now uh, as teenagers to mm-hmm. explore and, uh, you know, as, we, as you mentioned, we're not caught up in the responsibilities of the real world where we have to, you know, come down and focus back on our lives more. Right now we can afford to yeah. uh, spread our message to as many people as we want and just work on whatever social issue or whatever other issue we feel is important to us. And yeah. that's some that's yeah. uh, you know that's a great message 
to end this, um, you know, I just want to thank you for being here. Uh, I know it's, uh, you know, it's a great commitment to take out of your day to spend one hour recording a podcast. And uh, I'm thankful to you for it, and I'm sure all our listeners are too. Just wanted to put out there that um, A2M2 also has a website now, a2m2global.org. And if any of you are listening, you can go visit it. We also have an Instagram, at a2m2global, and a Twitter account with the same handle as well. So thanks a lot for being here, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you do in the future. Thank you. It was an honor and a privilege to do this with you guys today. I mean, just such an honor. So thank you for asking me. And good luck to you. Best wishes to you guys going forward. Thank you for being here. And best of luck to our listeners for whatever projects you want to take up in the future. Applications for Mm -hmm. A2M2 are now open. And the list of positions available is given on our website. Feel free to apply for any position that interests you. Thanks a lot. And we'll come back in the first week of August for another episode.